Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Pushkin. Talk easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by writer and poet Sandra Cisneros. Her debut book, The House on Mango Street, told the story of a 12-year-old Chicana growing up as Cisneros did, in a Latino neighborhood of Chicago. The book was released in 1984, but since then, it sold over 6 million copies and has become required reading in middle schools, high schools, and universities across the country. It also made her a key figure in the Mexican-American artist movement, which aimed to tell our stories with candor and complexity. Those qualities remain in Woman Without Shame, her first poetry collection in 28 years. These pieces, some of which you'll hear in this episode, range from tender to combative, as she reflects on the uphill battle on her journey to become an artist, or the loves and losses she experienced as a globe-trotting young woman. Like the work itself, this conversation plays like her poetry. Stories fragmented, truth dispensed in fits and starts, chronology be damned, we talk about growing up between the two worlds of Chicago and Mexico, the influence of her mother and Studs Terkel, her tumultuous time at the Iowa Writers Workshop, the highs of Mango Street and the lows that followed, and how, at age 67, she's just getting started. 
Just a warning here, around the 45-minute mark, there is a mention of suicide. It's part of a larger conversation around mental health, especially within the Mexican community. It is brief, but worth noting here at the top. Most of this conversation, however, is a celebration of her fascinating life and her remarkable work. And so, with that, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sandra Cisneros. Sandra, pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm glad to have you here. How are you feeling? I am feeling good. You say that so confidently. That's because I did a little meditation right before we began this show. We did it together. Exactly. Now we have to do this whole show together. Yes, yes in honor of our ancestors. Make them proud. That's my aim every episode, but especially this one, given that so much of your work is born out of the place that I came of age in, in Chicago. So I want to get to that. But to begin, we're talking around the release of your new poetry collection, Woman Without Shame. It's your first collection, I think, in 28 years. Is that right? That's right. And these pieces, as you write in the book, have been winnowed from three decades, two countries, and too many houses. It is time I let them go. And I wanted to start here. Why was now the time to let them go? Well, I would still be writing them, actually. It wasn't that I said let them go. It was that my agent and my editor said, you know, you have a book. I said, really? And you have to have a confidence to show someone unfinished work or work that's in your dead-end file and process file. And I shared it with these two men, my, my editor, John Freeman, and Stuart Bernstein, my agent, and I had to trust them both to look at work that's not done, and, and they encouraged me to let them go. And I said, really? Because I can never tell when they're, they're done. I would still be working at them for another 28 years if you let me. <laughs> Poetry is the most difficult of all the genres, and I always have to like lay them down and tuck them into beauty sleep and then pull them out when I can be a little more objective. That's why I require another writer to work with me. And a California poet, John Olivares Espinosa, he's a macondista too and a colleague from the Macondo Writers Workshop that I founded. And he works with me to say, well, this dance is kind of flabby. Or come on, you could do three more push-ups. Come on, you know, really? Oh, no, I don't know, John. I don't know. So he works with me as my personal poetry coach. Why is poetry the hardest genre? Because poetry doesn't come from your head. It comes from your heart and your gut and wounds and from a very deep place. And you're working on it like a musician. You're composing music with syllables. And so you move one word and you've lost the rhythm of that line. You have to go back and, you know, do another rhythm with it. You also have to voyage and chase after it like a kite. You know, you're running after it so that it can lift off and take you somewhere you didn't know you were going to go and find out something about yourself that you didn't know you knew. It's uh, terrifying. You know, I don't have to climb mountains or go into cenotes. I just write a poem. You said recently, I discovered a poetic truth that you have to write as if what you had to say is too dangerous to publish in your lifetime. 
Yeah, for me, you know, everybody's poetic truth is different. But for me, I want to go to places that maybe I'm hesitant to talk about, maybe I'm afraid to explore. I want to write about things that maybe women shouldn't be talking about or this woman shouldn't be talking about at this time in history. I really want to go very deeply and profoundly someplace within myself so that I can become a better human being because I think the whole aim of why we're on this planet is to be the best human being and uh, do work that serves others and to prepare ourselves to transform ourselves to our next whatever lies beyond this life, which I know something does. I want to practice so I'm not afraid when that moment comes. I want to understand where that tendency of writing about things you wish you could forget comes from. And, and I think to do that, we should start with a piece in this book called My Mother and Sex. Now, for context, you talk about your mother a lot in this recent collection. You grew up with her alongside your father in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago in the 50s and 60s. Among many other neighborhoods, because we moved around a lot. As the third child of seven children and the only daughter of the bunch, why don't we dive into this poem, My Mother and Sex? My Mother and Sex. Eight live births? How many dead? Who knew? Not us, her seven survivors. When a bedroom scene flashed on TV, she'd shriek and scamper to her room as if she'd seen a rat. It made us laugh. What were we, immaculate conceptions? Could be. Sex for her was dead. A duty dreadful as cooking for her famished army. Sad to think this. Pure postulation from lack of conclusive conversation. She never talked of sex, especially not with me. She said, I put everything in a book. Agreed. But what was worse, the truth or my imagination? What I know for sure, rapture for her, a library record symphony, ecstasy, opera in the park, intimate pleasure, books, Friday, Turkel, Chomsky, Herculean, brilliant, men unlike the man who shared her bed, who favored Sábado Gigante to Sebastião Salgado. And yet, father spoiled her, his Mexican empress, Paricutin tempestuous, clueless to what she craved. Her red flare sent up weekends, Help! There's no intelligent life here! Evenings in the blue moonbeam of TV, Father mesmerized by Mexican thick-thighed floozies, mother's word, not mine, shaking their hoochie-coochies. Father never drank, ran off, split flesh, brought home each faithful Friday a paycheck. Why would she complain? She lived alone in a house full of lives by the time I knew her. Snake bitter. Mingy, dead before being born, a woman in formaldehyde. How does that land with you? 
you know what? I feel like I understand my mother better after death. Writing poetry was a way to explore things she wouldn't talk about. You know, my mom was very skittish when it came anything sexual. You know, she, she didn't want to read my work because she was afraid of what I'd say. But, you know, I didn't have these conversations with her because she couldn't. And uh, I feel I understand her and forgive her and and ask forgiveness and forgive myself by exploring these taboo places. You know, you, especially if you're a Mexican daughter, you can't talk about sex with your mother. They run out of the room. They don't want to hear it. And so this was a way for me to understand her and to look at her in a way that my brothers could not. What you did understand of her is that she loved going to the library. Yeah, she loves going to the museum. She loves going to the Conservatory of Flowers. She loved art and beauty, the History Museum, the Shedd Aquarium, all of these cultural institutions. We were there every weekend. She would have liked to have been an artist. She sang, she drew beautifully, but she had no opportunity to become an artist. I think a lot of women from my mom's generation, they just went into wifedom without thinking there was an alternative, and they certainly didn't know about birth control and had all the children that were given to them, but without knowing how to control it. You know, families suffered economically, and children maybe suffered also because they didn't have the time with each of the parents. My father had to work sometimes two jobs. My mother was very bitter and angry all the time. So I think my mom didn't get to see the seeds she planted. She didn't see the harvest. She felt shortchanged by life. You said once that she didn't choose to be a mom. No, she got drafted. She wouldn't like me saying this publicly, but she had a son in her belly. I think she felt she had to marry. I think she would have liked to have maybe selected someone else to be her life partner. My mother and father were ill-suited as soulmates, but they were just terrific as a team of parents. And even though my mother was unhappy, my father babied and coddled and was amused by my mother's tempestuous behavior. You know, she was very berrinchuda, you know. She was one of those women that, you know, was like a paricutin, like a little volcano. They weren't great as soulmates. No. But they were supportive enough parents to get you into these cultural institutions that mattered. I imagine the library was the only place in a house full of nine people where you could find some peace and quiet. Yes. And, and, you know, I needed it. My brothers and my mother filled up the house with noise. I just wanted some peace and quiet. So for me, it was essential. I'm, I'm one of those people that are hypersensitive and empath. And so I can't take all this, the noise and the frequency and, and that made me nervous. Is it true that before you knew how to write, your brothers taught you how to edit a story? Oh, that was Kiki. My brother Kiki was funny, and I always tried to tell a story to make him laugh. And if I could make him laugh, then it was a good story. So Kiki was the one that was the uh, the story listener and the storyteller, and we were the two clowns of the family. So he, I think he honed my comedic skills and, uh, you know, the pacing. I just knew if he laughed... It was a good story. Then you've done something right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel like that description of your household is a lighter version of how you've described it in the past. You have this quote where you say, when you are a girl, you are invisible, especially if you're a Mexican girl. You are in the room and people are talking around you. 
I felt as if I was a spy in the house of my family. I didn't speak because I had such low self-esteem about what I had to say. I was often silent. I was a witness. Listening is very good training for being a writer. Yes, but I should qualify that statement. I meant publicly. And at home, when there were adults, we were taught to be silent. So when there were adults going on, I wasn't part of like conversation the way you see adults now talking to young people and saying, what would you like for dinner, Helen? No, we were just served whatever was made that day. And if you complained, you got a double portion. And this was my oldest brother, who was like the general. He just inflicted these rules. The only one that really was open to talking to me and paying a lot of attention to me was my father, because we were clones. We were the same person. How do you mean? Well, my father was a very sensitive man. He was super caballero, like one of those Mexican men that if he was in another era, he would bow, you know, that kind of polite man. He was raised with the idea of good manners. But that's taught even if you're campesino in Mexico people. The Mexican people have such good manners. And when they come to the United States, they're shocked at how bad manners uh, people in the United States have. No manners. People in the United States talk too loud. They don't say, how are you? They don't wait for a reply. Whereas in Mexico, if you don't have the protocol to know what to say or how to do, you're called a person without education. I just want to say, as a white passing Mexican, um, I'm sorry I didn't bow (laughs) when you you walked in here. You didn't have to bow. In Mexico, and people don't realize this, you're supposed to say... Buenas tardes, you know, and buenos dias, an acknowledgement, a human connection. That's something that I appreciate now that I live in Mexico. I do it to all the people I meet on the street, especially the tourists from the United States. Buenos dias. I could say good morning, but I don't. And they always like mumble. Mm-hmm. But I do it on purpose to uh, see if they've learned their manners and how to greet people in Mexico. Well, inside your well-mannered household. I want to stick on that line you had for a second. You said, I felt like a spy in the house of my family. I still feel like a spy in the house of my family. Sometimes I think, am I really related to these people? (laughs) I felt like a clone of my father, but I feel very different from my brothers and my mother. You know, when you're young, you always see what your parents didn't do for you because you're narcissistic as a young person. And it's only when you get older that you see what they did. But once you turn into an adult, a mature adult, which sometimes takes you know, a long time, you start forgiving them and you have to forgive yourself too. So I didn't really see my mom. I didn't meet her until she was exiting the planet. And I got to feel her spirit leave her body. I was very lucky that I could sense it. My brother was in the room, but he, he didn't know what was going on. I remember asking him, you feel that? It was exciting, like being in the birthing room. And he just scrunched his face and said, no. But I could feel my mother's spirit leaving the room. And it was so unlike my mother in real life. It was sweet and vulnerable and tender. It makes me now even want to cry. Because I thought, how did she get from that person to the woman I knew? How many disappointments so that she had to create that shell so that she could survive her life? And I'm so lucky that I was in the room to ask her to go, that it was all right, I would take care of things. And for her to flutter, because it really did feel like a fluttering, whatever that 
light was that was leaving the room. I could feel it. It's like, imagine like if you flicked a light on and off, but it had an emotion and then it just faded. And I thought, wow, that is so amazing. The beginning of your writing journey, I think happened in 1965, around the age of 11 or 12. It's then that your family moves into a home at 1525 North Campbell Street in Chicago. What happens in sixth grade in that classroom when a teacher comes to your desk and plucks away a piece of paper that you're writing on? Well, I was so used to teachers using students as examples of what not to do in the school I had been enrolled in. So when she plucked that paper from my desk, I thought, oh, no, what have I done wrong? And I was drawing a flower. I had drawn a face on it, and it had polka dots. And she picked it up, and she she took it to the front of the room and, and put a push pin through it and said, look what our new student just did. Because I, I was an artist, but I never got any attention for my art in the other school. There was no class for art or no grade for art. And in this school, she appreciated me and outed me as an artist. And I was so startled. I felt uh, she had made a mistake. I thought, how could she mistake me for for being smart? I had just gotten some new little blue glasses from the Sears from reading (laughs) too much. And I thought, she must think I'm smart because of the little cat eye glasses I'm wearing. And uh, I thought, to be nice, I would try a little harder. So I raised my hand, whereas in the other school, I just wanted to hide, never raise my hand. But in this school, because she had singled me out, I had a little more confidence to raise my hand. It was thanks to a teacher giving me amor puro y puro amor. That's the secret. Anything you give love to someone or some student or some human or some plant or some dog or some cat or some planet that you love with no personal agenda, It'll always turn out well. And it's because of that that you started writing. And yet what I'm fascinated by is that your first instinct to a teacher calling you out for doing something right is to think to yourself, I've done something wrong. I felt frightened. I had like this fear in my chest when she walked to the front of the room with my page. I thought, oh, no. I just remember this, the sweat coming off my face thinking, oh, what a mistake she's made, but how lucky that she thinks I'm smart and that I do something good. No one had ever done that in school before. Once you've accepted that, you know, maybe I'm doing something right, maybe I should be writing. Do you remember that moment inside a library when you're flipping through the card catalog and you have a kind of vision for yourself? I had a little laser vision of my future. And what was it? I was a card in the card catalog with my name on it and the title of a book. And I saw the spine of a book with my name on it. I didn't see exactly the title, but I visualized it with my third eye. And I said, that's what I want. I tell young people in middle school, visualize what you want now. Use your third eye. You don't have to tell anyone, but walk towards that dream every day. And you have to put that intention there when you're that young. You said once, I think I didn't know what I was creating As much as I knew what I didn't want to do, and I didn't want my mother's life, she was an unhappy, frustrated artist who always dreamed of a life that was never going to be hers. I didn't want to be married with seven kids and wish, oh, if only I had done this. Yeah, my mom didn't realize that 
her marriage scared me. I mean, I love my father. He was a really great guy, but he was not the greatest match for her. And I love my mother, but I knew a lot of her short temper and her bitterness and unhappiness that we caused it. I felt like we were the cause that she couldn't be whatever she wanted to be. On the other hand, I learned a lot from her. You know, she told me things like earn your own money, which is one of the first rules I tell young people. If you earn your own money, then you can control your destino. If someone else is doling out your money, then you have to do what they say. So that was a key to independence, earn Mm. your own money. Help me understand, as you start to shape your own destiny, you go to college at Loyola University of Chicago. Somewhere in that first or second year, you take this seminar on memory and imagination. That was graduate school, though. That was grad school Mm -hmm. at Iowa? At Iowa. I wrote one story that was in the Mango Street neighborhood as an undergraduate, but I didn't train with a fiction writer. So it wasn't until I was in graduate school that that seminar came up and I stumbled on my Achilles heel that I realized I didn't have a house like everyone else in my classroom and that I stumbled on my class difference as a result. How did you stumble upon that? Well, once I was in graduate school, I became that girl again who was afraid to speak up. And it wasn't until my second semester, first year, that we were reading houses, a seminar on houses and homes, that I figured out my discomfort was a class difference of coming from a different kind of house than my classmates. That awakening spooked me so much that I felt like running out of the room. I really felt like I've got to get out of here because no one had ever talked about class difference before. And you hadn't talked about class difference. Ever. (laughs) No, never. And it was just like I woke up in my graduate school seminar to class difference. And I thought, that's why I feel uncomfortable walking down Michigan Avenue and why certain shops I won't go in. And if I meet people that make me feel uncomfortable, I worry about the kind of shoes I'm wearing. It's all about being poor and realizing, oh, I'm poor. That's what I'm ashamed about. So my first thought was, oh, I don't belong in this writing program. What made me think I could be a writer? I should go home to Chicago. And I was depressed and crawled into bed and didn't climb out of bed all weekend, didn't leave my room. I'm 22, 21, and I'm thinking I should go back to Chicago and take that job with Chicago Public Schools that they offered me. I should go back and just teach high school students. I have no right to be in this program. But the wonderful thing about my depression, the other side of depression is rage. I got very angry and thought, well, why have I never seen a house like mine in literature or in a newspaper article written with love or in a movie? It's always, you know, vilified or shown in such a frightening way, but never an intimate way with love. And I told myself I would write what my classmates couldn't tell me I was wrong. And they say, you know, find your voice, write what you know. You don't know what you know at 21. But if you make a list of 10 things that you know that no one else in the room knows, 10 things you know that no one else in your family knows, 10 things you know that no one of your gender knows, 10 things you wish you could forget, 10 things you know that no one in your town, in your neighborhood, in your profession, it's 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10. You have a lot of things to write about. What was on some of those lists? Oh, I said, I'm going to write about, you know, certain people in my neighborhood, like this boy named Memortiz and his dog with two names. Uh, His name was Oso and Bear. You know, he had two names. 
in English and in Spanish. I thought about all kinds of people, the house that we had wanted and the one we didn't get. And, you know, so there's a lot of people and animals and uh, incidents that happened when I lived in that house. A lot of those poems from that early time in my life, in my thesis, were poems that I wrote that were very barrio-based, and I exploited shocking my classmates and writing about things that they could not write about. How do you mean exploited? Well, like, you know, I thought, oh, okay, what will I write about that will spook them? Let me write about a rat. A rat? A rat. Yeah, let's write about a That's rat. That's going to spook them? Yeah, because they write about swans. <laughs> yeah, let's write about uh, uh, like a little pharmacy that a child has to go to with a swollen infection. And, you know, the pharmacy, the doctor's behind the counter and, and has to split open a wound by slamming a book on it. Stuff like that, you know. <laughs> Everyday anecdotes from the barrio. I just wanted to shock them. I feel like I just fell into your rat swan trap yeah. just now. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, you know, they would write about swans and I would write about rats. I'm afraid of both of them, so. Oh, yeah, I guess I, I'm still afraid of rats. But I love a good rat story, but it has to be true. As opposed to all the untrue ones. Yeah, there's are ones that people make up. I don't want those stories. I agree. I, I agree. want like, you know, first person rat stories. Exactly. If it's not first person rat, get out of here. That's right. You heard it here first. When you're at school at Iowa, you begin drafting, as you said, the house on Mango Street. But in 1979, after you graduate, you return to Chicago to teach kids in the Pilsen Barrio. Is this around 18th Street? Yes, that's right. I was over on uh, 19th Street, I think, and off of Damon. It was there that you became, as you say, fascinated by the rhythms of speech. Fascinated by the rhythms of speech. Oh, fascinated by the rhythms of speech. Oh, it's you. That, do you just, oh, that was you. I was, every time I said that, I thought I was wheezing. No, it's me with my handkerchief. It was you with the handkerchief. Mm -hmm. I was like, I think I'm dying. On this podcast. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. I'm, gl- I'm glad to be alive. <laughs> um, okay. Um, <laughs> I said it three times. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Um, okay. It was there that you became fascinated by the rhythms of speech. This incredible deluge of voices. Urban voices, you know, urban Chicano voices. These kids that you were teaching... How did they inform the house on Mango Street? Their voices, for one, their stories. I was witnessing lives that were much more difficult than my own. How so? Well, you know, I had a mother and father that one stayed home and one went to work, whereas some of them, most of them, uh, had two parents that worked. And uh, as a result, didn't have a lot of self-discipline about getting up and going to school every day. Or they had parents that said, yeah, yeah, they had their estudiar. You've gone enough. You know, get a job and help me out. You know, my parents would never have said that. They regretted that they didn't finish their school and pushed us to get degrees and to work with our heads and not our hands. Whereas I had students whose parents wanted them to quit. And it was only through their own tenacity that they were getting their GED. And they had stories that broke my heart. Parents that maybe were physically violent or lovers that were physically violent or girls who had three children and were only 18 years old. Stories like that that were harder than my childhood. You mentioned your mother didn't really get the education that she wanted. But the schooling she did find 
came in the form of Studs Terkel. Yeah, she listened to Studs Terkel religiously, and whatever Studs said, you know, any book he mentioned, she would ask us to go get it for her. She knew a lot. You know, she was reading all these college textbooks, and she'd say, hey, you know, I, I heard about this poet from Chile that Studs was talking mm-hmm. about. Do you know who he is? And, oh, yeah, that's Pablo Neruda. Yeah, yeah, get that book. Get that book for me. So she would just, you know, sometimes not get the name, but she would tell me a little bit what she wanted. At the end of her life, her favorite writer was uh, Noah Chomsky. That's no slouch, you know. She would take a yellow marker and highlight whole pages, you know. (laughs) A whole page would be highlighted. When it comes to Noam Chomsky, you have to highlight the whole page. That's what she did. And, you know, she knew so much that she was the most well-read person in the barrio. God bless her. You know, he's come on this show, I think, four times. I still don't know what the hell he's talking about. I, I don't know what he's talking about either, but I like him. I got my mother to meet Studs Terkel. I was on Studs' show more than once. Studs was very intrigued by the story of my mom. He wanted to meet her to interview her for one of his books, but my mom was too embarrassed by the idea of him coming to her kitchen table. She was just too overwhelmed. So instead, I took my mother to the studio, and there's a photo of Studs and me and my mom together. I love that. Yeah, it was a big moment uh, that my mother got to meet her mentor. So Studs became her mentor. But I'm trying to think about the ways in which he informed your writing. Because you have this quote where you said, the kind of work I do isn't just about writing what one hears. You have to do some research. And to me, everybody's a walking library, as valuable as the Library of Alexandria. I like to write about people I know who aren't history, and they won't be in a history book, and they won't be in a museum. Yeah, to me, history books look at people of poverty, women, people of color as not counting. They're not history. They don't count. For me, it's so important to interview people when I do investigations. A lot of people were interviewed for Caramelo to get moments of history that are included in that book. To me, it's a history book. It's a history of immigration. There's even a timeline at the back of the book so you can see what U.S. attitude towards immigration has been and why it was created. I just feel like I want to document the people I love Because if I don't, they don't count. They're not history. Lots of people come across my life. Some of them are güeritas like my friend in former Yugoslavia. And, you know, I witnessed and lived through that war with her from a distance. I want to write about the Japanese people I worked with when I was 15. Many of them deported to concentration camps, but I wasn't aware of that. U.S. concentration camps during World War II and had no bitterness, or maybe they had bitterness, but they didn't express it to me. Parts of my past, I haven't written about everything, and I, I hope I live long enough to sketch with love the people that I've been lucky enough to cross paths with. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second... We'll be right back with writer Sandra Cisneros. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. 
Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Those stories that you're referencing, you find them, you hear them, you put them into your work. And once you put them into Mango Street, the book gets published in 1984. After the book comes out, you get to travel by yourself for the first time. And when you're traveling, you carry around this postcard that has a quote from Virginia Woolf. Yes, that I carried with me before the book was published. I finished the book with that postcard. I won an NEA when I was 27, 28. Mm -hmm. and, 1986. Uh, yeah, I bought a one-way ticket and found that postcard in a feminist bookstore, took it with me, and traveled to Greece to finish The House on Manga Street. So I finished it when I was 28. The quote reads from Virginia Woolf, As a woman, I have no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world. Now, you rewrote that a little bit, right? Yeah, I did. What did I say? Your rewrite of that quote was, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I'm an immigrant in the entire world. And I was thinking, how did that experience traveling by yourself make you rethink your family's own immigration journey? made me very much aware of what it is to be hungry or cold and not have a house. 
it was not a glamorous journey. I was trying to make my money last. Sometimes I didn't have access to funds. This was before like the ATM cards and before cell phones. And I, I realized that when I had these hard moments where I didn't have a place to sleep or not much money, women took me in. Women would allow me to share a twin bed with them or sleep on the floor or say, wait till my boss leaves and you can come and stay because they were working as au pairs or whatever the circumstances were. They weren't wealthy women, but it was women who always gave me shelter and who never asked for anything. Whereas when men gave you shelter, it sometimes happened, uh, they'd make a movida. You know, that was the pay they wanted you to pay for spending the night. And I learned that when men gave you things for free, there was a caveat. But when women gave you something, it was pure. The women were kind and, and would ask for nothing. Right. The men were kind and would ask for... Sex. Everything. Sex is what they wanted me to pay. But I am thinking about you as a young woman out in the world, writing as much as you were, but also, I imagine for the first time, having these romances? Well, there were times when I was traveling when I had romances, and there were times when I was celibate, you know, so it really depends on when and where. I was very young, you know, it was my choice. So there were moments when I had people in my life, and there were seasons when I did not. And I love that about my life at that time. I felt I had a little bit of money, not a lot, and I could control my days writing. I had places uh, when I was at an arts residency to live. When I was writing house, I was on an island. I had a house with a view of the sea. And it was the happiest time was when I was living in Greece and was writing. And if I wanted to invite someone to stay, I could. And if they stayed and I didn't want to have sex, I could. That was my choice. Mm. There was a beauty in having control of my sexuality and my love life. I wish we could live like that now. Now we get shamed because we have sexual desires as women. We have so much shame and fear. We even have politicians shutting down our desires, controlling our fertility for us, and churches coming in and butting in on our bodies. You know, it's, it's a horrible. I think women should have as many lovers as possible. How do you know who you're going to love and who's going to be with you unless you learn them and learn who they are from all aspects, with your heart and with your body? It's sacred for me to uh, have relationships with people that are so profound that I know them physically as well as spiritually. And I don't miss my amorous life. I enjoy writing about it, and I enjoy meeting people. And I enjoy the possibility that I may or I may not because I don't feel arrepentimiento. I don't feel regret. I don't feel sadness. I feel no shame. I feel like, wow, what an exciting life I lived. Que bueno. Well, why don't we read a piece in which you kind of process some of those loves? All right. Neither senorita nor senora. I didn't love those who did and did those who didn't. Once I almost proposed in Paris because it was Paris, my heart Fragonard's shoe. But he was afraid of the Pont Neuf and lingering in the rain. Another 
too busy saving worlds to think of saving us, I press between the pages of my thighs. Tender green lost me to the darkness under trees and lost himself to drink. Worst, the pest who could not love at all, whom I loved best. Shame, I wanted as souvenir. Cue the violins, please. His child, even if disastrous for the kid and my career. But that's history. More recently, an exploding cigar. Need I say more? God saves fools too foolish to save themselves. And now, the Orisaba years. Here I have no answer how I got from then to now, except with gratitude to all I bow. Hmm. Who's got time for them anyway? <laughs> exactly. Or as they say in Mexico, exacto. Well, if it's not regret, there is something I want to understand. I have here a photo of you in your Bucktown apartment, circa 1980. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you see? My abuelito and myself in Acapulco on a picture that's on top of the typewriter. He was very dear to me, my father's father. I see a decoupage bag, wooden box with parakeets on it that I decoupaged. And I'm wearing an old boyfriend's vintage woolen, I think it's a Pendleton shirt. But one time, maybe in the last five to six years, someone presented that photo to you. And here's what you said. When I look at her, I say, que tonta. <laughs> yes. What an idiot I was. I had so much power and I didn't know. And I gave it away. And I just, well, I had to make all those stupid mistakes. Well, how do you become a woman with your own power until you make mistakes? I mean, everybody has to make mistakes. That's how you learn and come into your power. And I didn't come into my own, you know, born that way. I had to make a lot of stupid mistakes. But I see how inocente she is. I'm still the most inocente person I've ever met, which is great. It's good to retain that childlikeness. You're young at heart. Uh, I am. I'm 11 years old in my heart. And I see an 11-year-old in her face. Man, I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm still writing about them and haunted by them and processing them. What comes to mind when you say that? Oh, man, I had affairs with married men when I was in my 20s that damaged me. I was very inocente about my relationships. I think people are vulnerable when they fall in love, don't you think? That sometimes it doesn't come from any place of logic, that it comes from baggage or previous lives. Or I don't know what, but I just made some really disastrous choices. Mm. And how did you give your power away? Uh, I didn't know I had any power. See, that's the thing. I didn't know I had any power. I tried to fit into these relationships or allow myself to go contrary to my own intuition or well-being. I didn't know how to become a writer. I didn't know how to become a powerful person. And I imitated some uh, very, mm, how can I put this in a kind way, some men that were spiritually undeveloped. Honest is really better than kind here. <laughs> that, that's, I'm being honest. 
they were not on a spiritual path. They were, you know, done no interior work. It was all about ego and all about their primordial, you know, chakras. And, you know, these were people that, for me, looked great because they were taking me to my path to be a writer or taking me on my path to be a political person or to be a traveler or whatever it is when we see someone and we admire, oh, we all want to be like him. And then later on, we uh, superamos, we pass that person. We're attracted to people who are reflections of who we want to become. And sometimes later we realize, oh my, they were so little. You know, I'm so much bigger than that. They're so chiquititos. But mm. at the time, you're in such doubt, you don't know who you are. So you go after all kinds of people that uh, sparkle and dazzle you and, and you think will transform you, and they leave you damaged. So after Mango Street comes out in 84, did you still have doubt about becoming a writer? I had a doubt about becoming a human being that could pay the bills. You know, even though our house was out, I only won $500 every time they did a print run. That wasn't going to last two months. So when I was in my 33rd year, I couldn't find a job. And I went through a year of near death, I call it, because I went through a great depression. And I doubted what good was writing if I couldn't take care of myself. I couldn't buy a car. I couldn't get insurance. I had to borrow any time I needed to make a big purchase. I had to borrow to get to a job. It just lowered my self-esteem to not be able to take care of myself for nine months. And I was living with my boyfriend who was a waiter and a photographer, you know, so we really didn't have any money. I remember a big night out for us was to go to Helen's Donuts in Austin and buy two cups of coffee and two glazed donuts. It was the big like night out for us. And the first job I was forced to take because I didn't want it was a job that my friend recommended for me at Cal State Chico. A teaching job. Yeah, my first. And I never felt comfortable as a student. So imagine me being the professor. And I got, of course, you know, the worst classes, the classes with people who didn't want to be there. And I just took all that failure and blamed it on myself. So every day I went to the job and every day I came home, I was dying. I, my spirit was dying. I wasn't writing. I was been, had not been writing. I'd been depressed for nine months and I just spiraled. I had a nervous breakdown. I now can see that, but I didn't know what to call it. What did that look like? You cry a lot. You don't want to go out of the house. You eat six chocolate eclairs and a box of cornflakes, and then you eat something salty, and then you say, no, that's not it. I need something sweet. And, you know, like a binging, eating, and crying, and not being able to sleep because you have nightmares. And your body's telling you, wake up. You need to seek help. But a friend of mine could see the signs of me marching towards self-destruction very soon, is the way to put it. And he said, you've got to come home to Chicago. I've already made an appointment with my therapist, who's a Jungian. She works with artists. You need to come home. If you don't come, I will come get you. And I was so numb. I was like a woman on an iceberg. And I said, okay. But the person I lived with, who I loved and loved me, said, if you leave, we're done. And I had to make a choice. And I felt if I stayed, I would die. But if I went, I might live. And so I left. And when I got home, I had this letter waiting for me that my mother said, there's a letter from Washington, D.C. I think it might be good news. It was from the National Endowment for the Arts. I forgot that I had applied and I'd given her address because I was transient. And I opened it with my coat on and it said, congratulations, you've won $20,000. And that meant I could get out of Chico, I could quit my job, I could do anything. And more important than that, 
it slapped me and said, you were put on the planet to be a writer and don't worry about being a professor. I remember telling my mother, get me a piece of paper. I need to thank the NEA. They saved my life. And I went to the bathroom and my period had never stopped and since my menses started as a teenager. And it had stopped uh, for nine months. I went to the bathroom and the blood flowed. It was like my body was holding its breath. And uh, I knew coming home was, I lost my partner. And I, I feel sad about that, but it was not a choice. I had to survive. My partner couldn't save me. Yeah, that's a sad time. But, you know, I forgive myself, you know, for hurting him because I'm here. I haven't written the sadness of that time, so it's coming out of my eyes. But I need to write about that because I know there are other people in our community that are suffering with depression and suicidal thoughts. And we need to know that when we can't battle this by ourselves, that they're professional therapists that can help us. When I won that NEA, I kept saying to myself afterwards, it's a good thing I'm not dead, because I could have gotten it posthumously. It was during that season that I really was losing it and uh, planning my death and how I would do it and how I would leave. I had it all planned out so that I could do it on a weekend and turn the car on and and stuff the garage with rags and take the cat with me because I didn't know what to do with the cat and wait until my partner was in the city for the weekend and no one would interrupt me. So I was very, very close to self-destruction that year. That's the year of my near death. And shall we read it? Yes. Now this poem is also about my mother's death. In 2007. Exactly. And in 2008... I also had the body speak. So this is about two years. It's two times of my death, you know, when I'm 87 and 2008. The year of my near death. Six months after my mother died, a ribbon unspooled from my uterus like a stillborn child. At 53, the womb awoke, exhaled, and spoke one last time. For my mother's sake, my own. I, who birthed no one in life, birthed grief. Thin red line on a road map, guiding my escape from servant to master, from daughter to adult ever after. My body spoke once before at 33, year of my near death, year of my cross. I suckered despair with silence, sleep, Measured self-worth by others, a child still borrowing to pay the bills, no good at anything but words. And what good were words when the month began? Nine months the uterus did not breathe. Nine months wavered before the breach, saved by providence, angels or ancestors. Stigmata to prove this story true. I've died twice and twice survived. At 33, the Christ year, and twin decades later when my mother transformed herself to light. Twice died, twice death defied. Marvel at the body's power to speak, mend, resurrect, forgive. Why did you pick that one? That's a hard one. 
but, you know, talking about it makes it easier for the listener because it's one I don't usually read out loud, not because I can't, but I think there are some poems that are paper poems. You need to look at it and savor it and read it and again and again. But I think with our conversation, that poem makes sense now. So why did you ask why I pulled it? Well, I'm just uh, wondering, why did it speak to you? What I understood going into this conversation, at least from the research, was that we couldn't really understand your heart without understanding 1987 and 2007. I think that's true. And it's something that I've talked about, but I haven't written the essay, Year of My Near Death. I've talked about it. Like I say, if you don't write it down, it never happened. I need to document it before someone documents it for me. And I've tried when I just came out of that dark time. I spoke about it at a lecture, but I was too close. You know, you need the long view of time to see yourself. The other reason I presented the poem is because although it represents some of your darkest hours, what comes on the other side of that is a kind of lifelong commitment to writing, your conviction to put your life on the page, I think, is fortified on the heels of that darkest hour in 1987. And in fact, it is physically manifested in 2007 because on October 24th of that year, your mother travels to San Antonio to see your new office. Which I built for her. That you built for her. What do you remember about that day? Oh, first, I remember that my mother didn't want to come. Uh, the ticket was for July, and I had to defer it because she said, oh, it's too hot in Texas. But I think my mother knew that her energy was waning, and she was afraid of traveling when she felt she was winding down and getting ill. I said, Ma, you have to come. This ticket is going to expire, and I can't recycle it. It's in your name. And that was the only reason she came, because I forced her. If I had not forced her... I wouldn't have seen her. You know, she didn't want to travel anymore. It's one of those things. And and my cranky brother came with her, my brother Eeyore. Well, that's my nickname for him because he's always complaining. So, you know, she came with Eeyore. And I remember the last thing she said, she was going through security. I said, uh, don't forget to tie her shoes because they had taken her shoes off and put her on a wheelchair. You know, my brother said, what? I said, don't forget to tie mama's shoes. What? Don't forget to tie Mama's shoes. And it was like one of those shouts from security. That was the last thing I said about my mom. You know, when I saw her, she looked up and we saw each other. And, and the next time I would see her, it would be in, in dreams. That day of October 24th, when she comes to see the office that you have built for yourself, but also for her, you two walk through the space. Yes, she was really impressed. It was such a beautiful office, and she was evaluating and taking an inventory of how much things cost because, you know, she uh, was married to an upholsterer, and she knew about <laughs> fabrics and uh, curtains, and she was looking and saying, hmm, 
hmm, that must have cost a pretty penny. That's the way she spoke. You know, she was just like, you know, impressed. She didn't want to go up to the terrace because you had to go up a little spiral staircase, which was a little iffy for her. But I forced her. I said, come on, you just can go up slowly. I'll put a cushion. You can go two at a time and just go up two and sit down and then another two. So we did like that. She went up the stairs backwards. You know, she climbed up, then she'd turn around and sit down, then two more and sit down. And I made her come all the way up to the terrace, and I put a cushion, like a yoga cushions and mats, and and made her lie down with me. It was really nice. Mm. The two of you lying down up there? Yeah, it was really, really nice. It was like a full moon. The moon was rising. It was really beautiful. And uh, we just, it was twilight. And you know, it wasn't daylight when we went up there. We just were up there for a while. I got some uh, sparkling wine or some champagne. I don't know what it was, Prosecco. My mother liked bubbles. And she <laughs> was always in a good mood if she had a highball. That's what she called it. So I just made sure that we had something for her to drink. She was in a good mood. She didn't want to climb down right away. It cost a lot of effort for her to climb up. So we were up there for a little while and just making plans. Maybe my brothers could come. And it was just like, you know, I finally got my mother to see what I had made with my pen. I never would have thought of building something that grand. It was for her. That image really sticks with me. You two up there. You look at her while she closes her eyes and you write, you close your eyes. You look like you're sleeping. The plane ride must have tired you. Good lucky you studied. You say without opening your eyes. You mean my office, my life. I say to you, good lucky. I've always wanted to write a story or a novel called Good Lucky, you know, and I hope I can do so in this lifetime. There is in the opera House on Mungo Street a song called The Good Lucky Song, and it's at the finale of the opera, and when I hear it, of course, it's in honor of my mother. Mm. You know, you've often said, when I was a child, I always felt that I wanted to rescue my mom from the slights of her mother-in-law. She had a lot of pain that she opened up to me about as a little girl, and I always wanted to come and rescue her, and as I became a writer, to tell her story. But I felt always that my mother knew so little about her own mother and her own grandmother and all the women in my family just got erased, that I wanted to honor them as much as I could, write about them, think about them, even though I didn't know their names, to somehow imagine their lives. And as we leave, do you think your way of rescuing her, something that you wanted to do as a kid but could not, do you think your way of rescuing her is by preserving her, in essence, in time, through words, on the page. My mother appears uh, more often in my work now, although she's present in every book I've worked on in some way, but she's uh, much more present in my life now that she's spirit. You know, she visits me and uh, talks to me. I see her asleep and awake, so she's not gone from my life. It's an extraordinary thing when you're... Um, and intuitive, and you know, and you see people awake and asleep. So some people only see them asleep, and some people only see them awake, and some people only get smells, and some people only get messages. But I've been very lucky. You know, I don't have a conversation with her like I do with you, but, you know, she'll visit me in the waking, sleeping, and in dreams. The relationship continues because I feel her love and her presence, especially when we're talking about 
my mom, like now, or like when I witnessed the Good Lucky song with the singers singing it, I knew my mother was in the room. I said, wow, she's not going to miss this. So I don't feel her absence as much as I used to when I was um, not aware of my spiritual gifts. And I'm learning to connect with her more and more. And I think I'm journeying with her uh, in the text I'm working on and text I will write, because this is an amazing time of my life. I'm only 67. I'm just like apprentice. I'm an apprentice, a baby about my craft, and I'm just learning a lot in this phase. And I'm excited about what I'm learning. So I'm learning with intuitives and people that have gifts that I have that I only have acknowledged in the last 15 years. I'm working on trying to share what I've learned in works I'm writing now. Well, before you go about writing your next chapter, why don't we end with a poem in this new book called Woman Seeks Her Own Company? You know, I keep looking at those ads that say, woman seeks male, male seeks male. I said, why don't they have one that says woman seeks her own company? (laughs) Woman seeks her own company. Profession, word weaver, fervent believer, humanity of humanity, proclivity, daydreaming, hobby, night dreaming, sensitivity, everything, pleasure, books, biographies, and poetry especially, lessons on how to mitigate disaster, medications, pen and paper, purpose, preservation, leisure, home, alone, Unstressed, uncombed, undressed. Indulgences, movies, pre-haze, and Italian tragedies. Because a good cry balances out a good laugh. Favorite actress, Anna Magnani. Preferred company, burros, elephants, clouds. Favorite soundtracks, trees speaking wind, rain, night thunder. Nagual, ocelotl. Like a lotl, nemesis, rodents, automobiles, planes, savored scents, mother's lilies of the valley, Grant Park lilacs, abuelito cigar, Mexico in the morning, family, friends, strangers, kin, Achilles heel, rescuing, vulnerabilities, six brothers, anathema, babies, Math, best trait, generosity. Fatal flaw, generosity. Put to rest, saber repartee and molotov bon mot. Luxury, seclusion, foibles, love life. Merit, my life as witness. Height, 5'2", or 157.48 centimeters, last measured diminishing with age, however, simultaneously growing in self-worth. Weight, done being concerned, shape-shifting into Chichen Itza, relinquished vanity of paint, ever-passionate fashion, personal aim, mystic, this lifetime or next, autocriticism, at peace with being work in progress, solo amusement, laughs aloud at her own jokes, encourages eccentricities, dislikes chit-chat, parsimony, satellite loyalties, fond of cholos, 
Maguey's Peonies, different drummer since birth, path not taken, all that. Culinary skills, none. Decadences, unmade bed, weekends, some weekdays too. Recompense, lounging like an odalisque. Preferences, what others think, sent to department of dearly departed. Artistry, at 65, convinced, just getting started. You're 67? I'm 67 only. Just getting started? I feel like I'm just getting started and like I'm just finally mastering something of what I know in my craft. But when it comes to spirituality, I'm like just a kid. I really have a long way to go. I want to do things like, you know, fly out of my body at night. You know, cool stuff like the mystics do. Maybe I won't get there in this lifetime, but eventually. I don't know if you're going to get there with the flying out of your body thing. (laughs) But I have a feeling you will continue to write. You have this quote on the art and act of being a writer that I just want to end on here. You said, when you're a writer, you live in dream time. 20 years, what's that? We put our head down and then we pick it up. A decade or two has passed. That's how I feel about my life. I was still a person that was writing that story. Time... Time was good to me, so I could find an ending for the story. But it's kind of like a kite. You begin with your own story, and the higher it goes, it starts to take off, and characters start to say things you would never say. The more you tether it to your life, it won't go very far. It has to begin from something constructed for me that's real, and then I just give it more string. That's a good quote. I said that? No, I wrote it. Liar, liar. (laughs) You started this podcast with the kite analogy. It seems only fitting that we end here. Yes, in dream time. And I just want to thank you for uh, dreaming. Even though as a teenager you were scolded for dreaming. I was. I am so glad that you became a woman that made it her profession. And that I get paid for it. Yeah, who would have thought? I'm so happy at this time in my life that I walk down the street giggling. Please don't stop. (laughs) I have to say, Sam, if you were not working on a radio, I would say, you would make a good therapist. You know, I'll tell my therapist that. (laughs) Sandra, thank you for sitting with me. Oh, thank you, Sam. I feel like uh, I've gone through all the emotions and back like if you hypnotized me. (laughs) We did it. Yeah, you're, how old are you? I think you're an old soul. That's not a good question. You're an old soul. I think you should be a therapist. That's our show. Special thanks to Gabrielle Brooks and the team at Penguin Random House, Mickey Collins, and of course, 
Sandra Cisneros. You can find her new poetry collection, Woman Without Shame, wherever you do your reading. To learn more about Sandra and her work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Ocean Vuong, Jumba Lahiri, George Saunders, Margaret Atwood, Claudia Rankin, Joyce Carol Oates, and David Sedaris. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the show with a friend. If you don't want to talk to your friend and you just want to review the program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen, that really does help us out a lot. Just giving us five stars on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Chris Shenoy. Photographs today by Caitlin Dryden. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Quinta Brunson. Until then, stay safe and so on. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.